So far in the book of Genesis, we've read about the great events of history past, events like the creation. Though it's not a complete story, it's what God wanted us to know about the beginning, the origins of life, His plan for the earth, the biosphere, mankind filling the earth. We've seen then the great event of the fall of man, or God's creation becoming marred by sin, and how that Adam's sin brought sin into the world. By one man's sin, Paul said, by one man's action, sin entered the world and death by sin. And so death spread to all men, for all have sinned. Then we saw the flood, that great cataclysmic event that wiped out ancient civilizations, what we call antediluvian civilization before the flood. Eight people were saved, Noah and his family. He was a preacher of righteousness, Paul said, and everything begins new. Then in chapter 11 we saw the Tower of Babel, how that shortly after the flood, because man's heart is sinful, it doesn't take very long after judgment for generations to forget what their forefathers had to endure. The new generation comes, they think they've got it wired, they become a bit cocky, and they go even further and further away than did their fathers before them. And so God must intervene. He is a God of mercy and a God of justice, but also, or a God of grace, but also a God of justice. And He intervened at the Tower of Babel. He spread men throughout the entire earth. We saw the table of nations where men began to settle. Now there's a shift. We've been studying great events. From chapter 12 onward in this book, we will study great personalities. We're going to not focus in on events anymore, but four people. Abraham, the man of faith, the progenitor of the Hebrew race, his son Isaac, and then Jacob, and then finally Joseph, his sufferings and his glory, which will take us to the end of the book. One of the things I appreciate about the Bible is the way it is written. It is not written like a theology text. If any of you have had theology in Bible college or seminary or whatever, you notice that you go into a systematic theology class and they begin with the theology of God. That's really what theology is, the study of God. And after theology, it's in an organized fashion, you study Christology the teachings about Jesus Christ. After Christology, pneumatology, the study of the Holy Spirit, all the doctrines and teachings related. After pneumatology, generally you come to soteriology, the study of salvation, ecclesiology, the study of the church and movements. The Bible is not written like that. It gives us events and it gives us people and it gives us human interest stories. It's inerrant scripture, but they are cameos, pictures of people. And what I really appreciate about the Lord is what He includes when He writes about people. God did not hire a public relations writer and say, okay, now write about Abram and uh, Joseph and, and really make it sound good. You know, puff these guys up. And, and you know, the, their, their faults, skip over them. Don't even mention them. God didn't do that. God thought, I'll give it all to you. They're good points and they're warts. Every flaw I'll show you. And so we see Abram, who becomes Abraham. 
He is called by Paul the father of them that believe, the father of faith. And he was a real example of faith. For the scripture says, Abraham believed God and it was imputed or accounted to him as righteousness. And yet, this great man of faith had lapses of faith. There are times when you look at Abraham and you think, man, you really blew it. And I like the fact that God includes the whole truth and nothing but the truth. Otherwise, you would look at the scripture, you'd say, man, these guys were perfect. They were so holy, I could never be used by God. But you read stories about Abraham, Isaac, especially Jacob, and you think, if God can use Jacob, man, there's hope for me. And I love the truth in the scripture that the eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the entire earth. God is looking that he might show himself strong on behalf of those whose hearts are loyal to him. That's what he's looking for, a loyal heart, not a perfect life. You come as you are and God will accept you. Then God will begin to change you, but you will fall along the way as a Christian. The beautiful thing is that you can get back up. You can brush yourself off. In fact, God will brush you off and he'll use you again. You might be a prodigal son or daughter that has fallen away from the Lord this evening. You followed your own paths, the own your own dictates of your heart. No matter how many steps you've taken away from God, there's only one step back to him. And you come back to him. And your heavenly father will be much like the father of the prodigal son. He won't say, what are you coming back for, sympathy? The Lord will open up his arms and run to you and put his arms around you and say, let's rejoice. My son, that which was lost is now found. That's a story that we're going to read about with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob uh, many times over as we get through it. Uh, we ended with uh, parts of chapter 11. Verse 24 is a genealogy that leads up to Abraham. It says, this is the genealogy of Terah, verse 27. Terah begot Abram. His name means exalted father, which at this point was a joke because he didn't have children. Nahor, and Haran, and Haran begot Lot. Abraham is one of the greatest persons in history, let alone the Bible. He is probably, now listen carefully, the most famous human being worldwide. More people around the world know of Abraham than perhaps any other person. Certainly, the people in Africa, the people in Asia, and the Middle East have heard far more about Abraham than they have of George Bush or Bill Clinton or Ross Perot or any of the Hollywood movie stars that come and make their flash and leave and all the ones that we think are really special. They haven't heard of those really that much. But Abraham is the one that three great religions trace a heritage back to. Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. You go to Africa and ask about uh, somebody in America, they won't be able to know who he is, but ask them about Abraham, they'll tell you about Abraham. He's a famous person. He was also a generous person. We'll read about that tonight. God blessed him. And I think one of the reasons God blessed him financially is that he was so generous. I noticed that God will often entrust great riches to those 
that he knows will not hoard them, but will share them. And I see many people struggling so hard. And if God were to bless them financially, they would hoard it all to themselves. I've met people with great wealth who have huge hearts. They're just looking for people to bless. Abram was like that. For when Lot and Abraham come back from Egypt after a bout with the king of Egypt, Pharaoh, they get back to the land of promise. And Abram says, Lot, look. Look at all the land in front of you. Take whatever portion you want, and I'll take the leftovers. He was a gracious and he was a generous man, but principally he was a man of faith. Yet, as we have already said, he falls. In fact, he falls four times or has four lapses of faith in his lifetime. We're going to read about at least one of them tonight. And Haran died, verse 28, before his father Terah in his native land in Ur of the Chaldees. You may want to just locate on the map behind me or in your Bible, Ur of the Chaldees, because we're going to see, as we see behind you, uh, the red marks showing the um, travels of Abram from Ur of the Chaldees north to Haran and then down into the land of Israel that God promised him. Then Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai. Her name, as you know, gets changed later on to Sarah, which means princess. But Sarai means dominating or head. <laughs> now, the man is to be the head of his household biblically. Doesn't mean he's always right. Means he's always responsible. Yet, there does come a time when Sarai does seem to be very dominating in the relationship and she's just really a tough gal to get along with in some areas. Yet, she is tempered by the Lord and she is exalted in the New Testament. In fact, Sarah is used as an example for wives showing respect to their husband. And I think that the name change was also indicative of a character change, just like for Abram. The name change from exalted father to father of a multitude was going to indicate the promises that God was going to fulfill through his life. So Abram, exalted father, marries dominating or head. And the name of Naor's wife, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah, and the father of Iscah. But Sarai was barren. She had no child. Abram and Sarah probably had a pretty normal life in Ur of the Chaldees. Three-bedroom tent. Two-camel garage. All the amenities. But it says that Sarai was barren. In Hebrew, it's literally sterile. She couldn't have children. In those days, it was seen as a curse to not be able to have children. Later on, the Jews developed traditions and sayings, and one of the sayings that was common among the Jews is that there were three people that would not enter heaven. One, a man who had no wife. Secondly, a woman who had no children. And then, of course, the Gentiles. Now, this was not biblical. This was just sayings that went around by the very narrow-minded, ultra-religious ultra-legalistic Jews, but nonetheless it was seen as being a curse from God. His stamp of approval wasn't on my life. That's what people thought. Now that's not the truth, but that's how people thought. She was barren 
and she had no child. And I bet that Abram was sort of the laughing stock, don't you think? His name was Exalted Father, and yet he could have no kids. Hey, Exalted Father, how's your family? <laughs> now, he has to live by faith in what God's going to tell him in the next chapter, but we read in verse 31 of chapter 11, uh, Terah took his son Abram and his grandson Lot, the son of Haran, his daughter-in-law Sarai, the son of Abram's wife, and they went out with them from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to the land of Canaan. They came to Haran and dwelt there. You can see that on the map. And so the days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran, or Haran, however you want to pronounce it. It's up to you. Now the Lord had said, chapter 12, verse 1, to Abram, Get out of your country, from your kindred, and from your father's house, to a land I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. You shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse him who curses you. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Chapter 12, verse 1 is, in a sense, I see a picture of salvation. You have a man who lived in a pagan culture, or of the Chaldees. God interrupts his life and gives him a call to which he must respond. Leave your background. Leave all that you know in terms of security. And now follow me in a life of faith to a land that I'm going to show you. God interrupted him. On the surface, it seems as though Abram is very obedient, right? If you were to follow chapter 11, verse 27, all the way down, it sounds like Abram received the call, was immediately obedient, and went down to the land that God wanted to show him. However, you have to understand the way the Hebrews would write and the way the Scripture is given. This story is not in order chronologically. Chapter 11, verse 27 through the end, is an overview of Abram's life until his dad dies. Chapter 12, verse 1, notice, Now the Lord had said, not the Lord said, the Lord had said to Abram, Get out of your country, from your kindred, and from your father's house, to a land that I will show you. If you were to read this chronologically, it would show you that Abram left Ur of the Chaldees, the place that he started, went north to Haran, or Haran, and then God called him, and from there he went down. But that's not the case. God called Abram, not when he was up in Haran, but when he was down in Ur of the Chaldees, to leave mom and dad, to leave his land, and to go down south to the land of Israel. In uh, the book of Acts, chapter 7, shared some insight on this whole story as Stephen gives an account. I'll read it to you. Stephen says, Men and brethren, listen. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he dwelt in Haran and said to him, Get out of your country and from your relatives and come to a land that I will show you. And he came out of the land of the Chaldeans and dwelt in Haran. And from there, when his father was dead, he moved him to this land in which you now dwell. Okay, now we have a problem. A problem for Abram. And that is, Abram at first did not completely obey God. 
God called him while he was in Ur of the Chaldees, but he travels to Haran with his dad. His dad becomes a tag-along. Now God said, leave your country, leave your relatives, and walk in this new venture of faith. He didn't do it. It was half-hearted obedience. Now he leaves, but he doesn't leave the way God wants him to. Takes his dad with him. It is supposed that Terah, his dad, was a hundred years old at that time. Now I can understand why Terah would want to go with his son. Any place gets old after being there a hundred years. Maybe he was having a midlife crisis. He thought, I got another good hundred years. I want to go see something different. I can imagine that one day Abram said, Pops, it's time for me to leave. I know you can't understand this, but in the midst of all of the other gods that are worshipped here in Mesopotamia, I have found the one true God. He spoke to me. He appeared to me. He's calling me out of this polytheistic pagan culture, and I'm going to follow him. Well, son, I'll go with you. What Abram should have said is, no, God called me alone, but he didn't do it. He goes to Haran, and most scholars believe he lived there for 15 years. Just wasting time because he wasn't living in complete obedience. It was half-hearted discipleship. And then 15 years later, we read that he comes down. For we read, God, or the Lord, had said to Abraham, Get out of your country, from your kindred, which is relatives, and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. There's a few lessons before we finish off chapter 12, or really get into it. Number one, following God involves a break involves a break from the past. If you do not break from the past, you cannot grow. Repentance means to turn from and to turn toward. There are lots of people who think that they can just walk into the new land of Canaan without taking a break and leaving the old land. The biblical word is to repent, to make a change of mind, a change of direction, and to follow a new leader. It involves a break from the past, and oftentimes it means breaking from your past friends, those that have a great grip and influence on you. doesn't mean you divorce yourself completely from non-believers. In fact, I think that can be a mistake. But it means that you set new priorities, and you develop relationships with Christians so that you will grow in the faith. You'll have a solid foundation, and you're making a distinct break from the past. Second principle, going halfway is not enough. Tara was a tag-along. Haran is halfway, as you can see on the map, in miles, in the way they traveled, between Ur of the Chaldees and the land of the Canaanites, or Israel, where he came. He went halfway, but halfway is not good enough. Third principle, you will pay for the choices that you make when they are half-hearted choices. I'd like you to look ahead at verse 7 of chapter 12 that says, Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your descendants I will give this land. And there he built an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. Now, scholars believe that Abram wasted 15 years of his life in Haran. We read here that God does not speak to Abram until he leaves Haran and goes into the land that God told him to go into, which means God did not have anything to say to him until there was complete obedience. He paid for the choice by not having God's fellowship. God had nothing to say to him. And you know what? When God gives us a command, 
When God gives us a dictate in the scripture, obey it. I really think that God has nothing to say to us until we obey the first principles that he tells us. You know, I have met people, let me give you an example, who have blatantly disobeyed God by shacking up with some young guy or some young gal. They say, oh, we love each other. Oh, we still love the Lord. And yet I notice their quiet times are dry. They might come to church, but there's no joy in their life. God doesn't speak to them. They're playing games, but there's really no fellowship with God. God has nothing to say to you. You know, people say, well, listen, I prayed about it. I'll pray about it and see if this is God's will. You don't need to pray about it. The Lord said that you shouldn't do it. Appear, avoid all appearance of evil. And until we're willing to obey God in His Word, you can pray about it all day long. I think God has nothing to say until you're willing to obey Him in what you know He has already said to you. Then you can live with a clear conscience. Fifteen years he missed the voice of God. The fourth principle is that God is patient. You know, if I would have been Abram's boss, I'd have fired him. Abram, do this. Okay, God. And he half-heartedly obeyed. I'd have fired him. If I was God, I would have just said, you know what? I'm tired of you waiting around for 15 years. There's a lot of other guys back in Ur of the Chaldees that I could choose who would be willing to follow me. You're history, pal. But the great truth is that God is interested in the person as well as the work that God wants the person to do. Did you know that? God is just as interested in working in you as he's working through you. And if you disobey, God will chase you, just like he did to Jonah. I'd have written Jonah off, too. When I, if I had said, Jonah, go do my bidding and preach to the Ninevites, okay, 2,000 miles due west, he goes. But God was patient, sent a whale after him. Got his attention. Got him back on target. Verse 2 says, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. And you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Five times God says, I will. There's a real emphasis I don't want you to miss. God is calling Abram. He's promising him something. But there's this emphasis on Abram, I, I, I. This is what I will do for you. On one hand, God says, obey me. On the other hand, God says, this is what I'll do for you. The point being, Abram, obey me so that I can do for you what I've always wanted to do for you. I want to bless you. I need your cooperation. I want you to obey me because I want to bless your socks off. When God gives you things to obey, commands to obey, commands to fulfill, it's not because God wants to cramp your style. It's because God wants you to blossom. And the only way, the, the secret to that blossoming is obeying Him. And so He gives them the command. But the emphasis is I, I. I have noticed that there is a misplaced emphasis in many churches concerning the work of God. In many churches and organizations that I have visited, I notice that a trip is laid upon the congregation. And the emphasis becomes what you ought to do for God. 
And I also know that a lot of people love it. They love to be beaten. They love to feel guilty. Because guilt is a strong motivation. You ought to be witnessing more. You ought to be loving more. You ought to be bringing more people to church. You, 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 you. And if, even if you asked people, they probably would tell you that the primary purpose of the church is to save souls. That's wrong. The primary purpose of the church on earth is not to save souls. It's not the primary purpose. And whenever you think it is, you have misplaced the emphasis. The primary purpose of the church is that we exist for the Lord's pleasure and glory. And until you've learned that, you will not be effective in this world. We read about it in the book of Revelation, and for thy pleasure we are created. We exist to give glory to God, to upreach, to worship Him, to be pleasing to Him. Secondly, we exist to build up one another as a church. And then thirdly, we exist to evangelize the world. You won't get very far unless those first two priorities, biblical priorities, are set in order. But when the emphasis becomes you, 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 you know what happens? If you grow up in a church like that, you have a lot of beaten, frustrated, guilty sheep. They hang their heads. It's just, oh yeah, serving the Lord is great, great fun. That's great. The emphasis, as I read it so often, is first of all what God has done for you and then your response to what God has done for you. Hey, you can't do anything for God unless God does something for you. He initiates it. I will, I will, I will. Doesn't mean that you disobey, no, but you cooperate with it. But the emphasis is what God does for us. What God does for us. And that's the pattern of the New Testament. Read Ephesians. Every time Paul writes a letter, he always talks about what God has done for us. Then somewhere in the middle of the book there's a therefore. Unfortunately, Christians begin their walk right in the middle of the book. Therefore, do this, do that, do this, do that. No, man, go all the way back to the beginning, Ephesians 1. Chosen in Him before the foundations of the world, predestined in Christ Jesus, set in heavenly places with all spiritual blessings. And then the prayer, I pray that God would open up your eyes, that you would see the resources that you have to live the Christian life. Therefore, you respond to what God has done for you. Abram is now called to respond to what God wants to do through his life. Come to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. You shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you. I will curse him who curses you. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. I wish really we had the time to take those one at a time, those promises, because they're so beautiful. But um, maybe we can just barely touch on them. Because uh, we can't really go in depth. But there's some important principles here for us. First of all, he says... Uh, I will make you a great nation. Uh, no, 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 no. Verse 1 says, um, Go to a land that I will show you. In other words, Abram, I've got a place just for you. A place for you to spread your wings and a place for you to serve me. And, and we could say that that's true for every one of us tonight, couldn't we? God has a place for you. In this big wide world, in this huge thing called the church, the body of Christ, the Lord has a place 
specifically for each one of you to function and to serve him. He has a land for you to spread your wings. Thus, it is important that we discover our gifts so that we become effective in our sphere of influence, our land. But God has a place for you. One of the great tragedies of the church, I believe, is that so many don't function as being part of the body. Either they think they're too insignificant, or they're not as good as somebody else, they don't have that particular gift, or they never bother to discover what their own giftedness is and contribution to others. They just sort of live like a weed, taking energy from other plants. Never really giving. Never really spreading their wings in the land that God wants to give them. Paul the Apostle, in the book to the Corinthians, he says that different gifts have been given, and just as there are different parts of a human body, we all have different functions in the body of Christ. So he says, the eye cannot say, or the ear cannot say, because I'm not an eye, I'm not of the body. Paul said, is it therefore not of the body? And if the foot says, because I'm not a hand, I'm not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? No. Now Paul contrasts two parts of the body that are seen and important, that we regard as important because they're visible, and two parts of the body that are unseen and ill-regarded. You don't see feet much especially in our culture. People usually wear shoes. You don't say, hey, can I shake your foot? But you do say, can I shake your hand? You usually notice a person's eyes when you meet them. You rarely look at their ears, unless there's some feature about their ears that would draw attention to them. <laughs> the first thing I noticed when I met my wife, Lenya, were her beautiful round eyes. I didn't say, wow. Look at those earlobes. <laughs> Beautiful. I did notice her eyes. However, the feet and the ears are very important. In fact, there are parts of your, your body that are more important than those that you see visibly. The internal organs. When is the last time you really thought about your pancreas? Do you ever wake up and think, I wonder how the pituitary gland is doing inside the cella tersica and how the pterygoid plates are lined up in my skull. And you don't think about those things unless something's wrong with them. The doctor does an examination and says, man, you've got pancreatitis. And then all of a sudden you read up on it and you know very well about your pancreas. Those parts of the body that are unseen have a function. You all have a function, some land, some sphere of influence that God wants you to spread out in and serve him in. It's important that you discover what it is, what God wants to do through you. Then in verse 2, God says, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. One of the greatest thrills for any child of God is to be used to bless others. Have you noticed what the thrill that you get when you get to lead somebody to Christ? Or you get to tell them some truth about the Word of God and counseling? And you see, yeah, man, I understand that. You go, all right, God used me. He used my mouth. He used my hands, my life. It's a thrill to be used by the Lord. God wants to bless you, and then God wants to make you a blessing. Thursday night in communion, we spoke about that great truth in John chapter 7. The last great day of the feast, Jesus stood up. He said, if any man thirsts, let him come unto me and drink. And out of his heart will gush torrents of living water. There's a twofold truth to that. 
Number one, you will be satisfied by the living water yourself. And number two, it will flow from you to quench others' thirst. God wants to bless you, to satisfy you, to quench your thirst. But he doesn't want you to stop right there. If you're the kind of a person who has joined the Bless Me Club, and that's all church is to you, you are missing a dimension of your life and a whole lot of joy. The real joy comes is when you expend your life to bless others. In the King James Version, Paul spoke in one of his epistles about those addicted to the ministry. I find that to be very rare, even among so-called servants of God, where they're addicted to serving others. They're often addicted to their own schemes and projects and plans, but very rarely addicted to serving others. But when you become addicted to serving others, what a thrill it is as God makes your life a blessing. Then in verse 3, God says that he would protect Abram and his descendants. I will bless those who bless you, curse him who curses you, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Of course, this happened, not only to Abram, as you'll see in the ensuing chapters, but to the children of Israel. Every nation that has come against Israel to destroy it is no longer in the same political structure or stature that she once was. Babylon came against Israel to destroy her. She's a vestige of history. Rome came against Israel to destroy her. A vestige of history. Germany came against Israel to destroy her with killing six million Jews in the ovens in World War II. Germany has been floundering ever since. Though it's risen structurally in its economics, it's now floundering, and it always has been. Egypt, though once controlling the world, has floundered, and God judged her. And so it is important when a nation sets its policies to ask, what will I do regarding God's covenant people, the Jews? Are they still God's covenant people? You betcha. Does that mean they're flawless? Oh, no. They've got huge problems. Nonetheless, God promised them that he would work with them, regather them back in the land. He's done that since May 14th of 1948. God still is making his promises good. There is one promise, however, that is yet to be fulfilled. God did bless all of the world through Abram because Jesus Christ, the Messiah, comes from his loins, becomes the Messiah and the Savior of the world. But... There still is the land that God promised to give to Israel. She never occupied it all. God said, I'm going to give you a whole lot of land from the Euphrates River down to the river of Egypt, which is a little stream out in the Arabian Peninsula, or out in, down in Egypt, out in the desert. From the Mediterranean Sea all the way up north to the Hittite Kingdom, a total of 300,000 square miles. It's a lot of land. Israel, at her zenith during Solomon's reign, only occupied 30,000 square miles. A tenth of all that God ever promised Israel was the most she ever occupied. So the promise is yet for the future. When Israel will be in control of places like Jordan, Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, Iraq, Iran, northern Egypt, Lebanon, Syria, now, I know that her neighbors would not be too excited to know that, but uh, nonetheless, the promise stands. So Abram departed as the Lord had spoken to him, and Lot went with him. And Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people whom they had acquired in Haran, 
And they departed to go to the land of Canaan, and so they came to the land of Canaan, finally. Abram passed through the land to the place of Shechem, or as the Hebrews say, Shechem, as far as the terebinth tree of Moreh, and the Canaanites were then in the land. And the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your descendants I will give this land. And there he built an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. And he moved from there to the mountain east of Bethel, a name that means the house of God, the place where God is meeting with Abram, and he builds an altar there. East of Bethel, and he pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east, and there he made an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord, and Abram journeyed, going on still toward the south. Now there was a famine in the land, and Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land, and it came to pass, when he was close to entering Egypt, that he said to Sarai his wife, Indeed, I know that you are a woman of beautiful countenance. It's a nice thing to say to your wife. In fact, I think you ought to say it daily. Reminder that she's beautiful. So he says, Honey, oh, you're gorgeous. Now that part's all right, but he's leading into something else. He's leading into another lapse of faith. And uh, perhaps some women have their flags go up when their husband comes on that and I say, Oh, honey, you're just so beautiful. All right, what is it? <laughs> Therefore, it will happen when the Egyptians see you that they will say, This is his wife, and they will kill me, yet they will let you live. You would be interested to know that Sarah, Sarai, He's 65 years old at this point. And Abram is so worried that this 65-year-old woman would attract so much attention because of her physical beauty that they would want to kill him to take her. I love it. Now, Abram's in the land before he goes to Egypt, the land of Canaan. God told him to go there. He obeyed God finally after 15 years of half-heartedness, goes into the land of Canaan. But there's a problem. There's a famine in the land. Now picture the scene. Abram gets up in the morning, opens the flap of his tent, sees that it's kind of dry outside, hasn't rained for a while. In Israel, you depend upon rain. There are really no rivers except the Jordan. And unless it rains, the Jordan is depleted. The land goes dry. So he notices it's dry day after day. It gets a little bit worse. And he says, you know, honey, it's, uh, it's a lot really dry out there. And uh, I'm not used to this. You know, I'm used to the Persian Gulf area or the Chaldees. There's lots of water down there. And, and I see a lot of caravans going down to Egypt where there's a lot of water. And, you know, we've got a lot of livestock. And perhaps Abram started wondering, I wonder if I miss the Lord. I wonder if it was really his voice that I heard, if this is really his will. The next thing we read is that he goes down to Egypt. We read nothing of him asking the Lord. He just goes for it. That was his first problem. He didn't say, Father, show me your will, like he did at Bethel, built an altar to the Lord and God communed with him. He just went for it. It's always a mistake to go out without praying. Parents, you know what it's like when a three-year-old climbs on the counter and puts his fist in the cookie jar and you stop him not because it's wrong to eat cookies, but he didn't ask you. You didn't give him permission. And moreover, it's right before supper time, and that'll spoil his meal. 
You don't want him to eat cookies. You want him to have nutrition. After he eats his meal, go for a cookie. He didn't ask, and it's not good for him. Abram didn't ask, and it wasn't good for his life of faith to circumvent trusting in the Lord in the land God told him to get into and go down to Egypt. But he goes anyway because he pushes the panic button. And that, I think we can relate to that. It's easy to trust God when things are going our way. When God's providing for us, the money comes in, the bills are paid. Oh, God's good. Praise the Lord. I trust Him. What a great God we serve. What a mighty God we serve. What about when the boss says, you're fired or you're laid off? Oh, God. We panic and we can split. Without consulting the Lord, you know, when I was a young Christian, I had an, an interesting little experience. I prayed for a job, and it was one of these wonderful prayers. Oh, God, you're faithful, and I pray that you'd give me a job. Lord, anything you want me to do, I'll do. You can count on me. Of course, what a stupid thing to pray, right? So God gave me a job. I worked at Jess Ranch in California, a turkey farm. My job was putting turkeys on the assembly line for Thanksgiving. It was a huge warehouse, mostly of migrant workers. And I worked in there, and as the turkeys would come down the assembly line, they were killed, bled, and the guy before me cut its feet off and gave them to me, and I would hang the legs up on a hook. After two hours, I said, I don't think God gave me this job must have been you. <laughs> that eight hours, that one day, felt like about eight months. It was the most boring work I've ever done. I still can recall what it was like. At the end of the day, uh, I kind of pulled an Abram. I pushed the panic button and went down to Egypt. I went into the boss and I, I lied. I'm a believer. And I said, uh, you know, some things happened in my family and uh, tied up a little bit and I've got to go and I quit. He said, you, after one day? He said, yeah, strange things have happened, but I got to quit. I just, it, I just couldn't handle it and I split. A couple days later, I had the audacity to say, Father, I ask you for a job. Lord, any job. I'll do anything you ask me to do. And I ate my words. They just sort of froze in my mouth, hung there, as I realized that I was caught. God, I am convinced, had something for me in that place. Had I hung out, trusted Him, it was a long time, long time before I got a, a place of employment after that. And, and I'm not, again, trying to, to say that if you're in a place of unemployment, that's why. I, I can't read that into your life. I'm just saying in my life, I lacked staying where God had put me and answering my prayer in that place of trust, though it was tough, very tough. I should have just hung it out, stuck it out. I didn't. I pushed the panic button, went down to Egypt, and learned a lot of lessons in the meantime. Now, his concern about his wife is not unfounded. The writings that we have of ancient Egypt show that it was a very common practice for Egyptian men to gravitate towards Semitic women because the Egyptian men felt, they believed, that their own women, as they put it, faded early. 
And so what they would do is often find a Semitic woman, kill her husband, and then take her as a wife. They felt it was too unethical to just take her without killing her husband. So first of all, they would kill the husband. It was the only ethical thing to do. And so Abram's concern were well-founded. And so he says, you know, tell him you're my sister. They'll kill me. They'll let you live. Please say, verse 13, that you are my sister. And it may be well with me for your sake that I may live because of you. Here's this great man of faith. Abram believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness, the father of those who believe, saying, tell him you're my sister. He left the place of fellowship with God. He goes down to Egypt without consulting the Lord. And one sin leads to another. He's now lying about his wife. Sort of a lie. It's a half lie. In a sense, she was his sister. In that, Sarai was the daughter of Abram's father, but not Abram's mother. Abram's stepmother. Uh, Abram's mother, one who bore Abram, had died. And uh, uh, his dad, Terah, married another gal. And, uh, oh, you know, they had many wives in Ur of the Chaldees, in Egypt and some of these places. And uh, Sarai was among the pack. And uh, he married her and brought her with, uh, with him. And so it was a half lie or a half truth. And so it was, verse 14, Abram came into Egypt that the Egyptians saw the woman that she was very beautiful. And the princes of Pharaoh saw her and commended her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken to Pharaoh's house. He treated Abram well for her sake. He had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male and female servants, female donkeys, and camels. But the Lord plagued Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's, uh, Abram's wife. And Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this that you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister? I might have taken her as my wife. Now, therefore, here is your wife. Take her and go your way. Um, you might find it interesting that though she was 65 years of age, she was strikingly beautiful. I'll tell you how we know this, not only from what's implied in the text, but in 1947 there was a discovery in the northwest shores of the Dead Sea called the Dead Sea Scrolls. They were found in a series of caves in what's called the Qumran community, a group of very ascetic, hardcore Jewish people that lived out in the desert. When the scrolls were found, many scholars who were liberal thought, aha, these scrolls will prove that the Bible is full of myths and full of holes because it dated so far back to about 250 B.C., 280 B.C., when they were written. As they read them, they discovered that the one thing that was lacking between the book that you have and documents that old, the only thing lacking were mistakes. They were the same text, no errors. Scholars were blown away. What they also found was called the Genesis Apocryphon, which spoke in detail about the beautiful features of Sarai. What a gorgeous woman she was at age 65 and beyond which substantiates the story as we read it here. Also, there's a sort of play-by-play -play summary somehow passed down to the Essenes from Abraham. We don't know how accurate it is. But of his walking through the land that God gave him. And it confirms the fact that at one time the land of Israel was very lush, very verdant and fertile. 
and more of a rainforest than it is today. People go to Israel and see parts of it and they think, this is the promised land? This is the land flowing with milk and honey? I mean, many parts of it are desert. Yet there are parts that are very lush, yet the part where Abram was looks very desert-like. But things have changed. The land has been denuded by enemies. Trees were cut down. And uh, as a judgment of God, the land became a desolation. In fact, in Deuteronomy, God says the people will come through this land and they will say, What meaneth this desolation or this burning? And people will say it is because of the judgment of God that the people have left their God and God has judged it. In verse 17 and 18, uh, actually verses 14 through 17, we see an important lesson. That is, when we sin, others suffer. Abram, because of his lack of faith, puts his wife in jeopardy of becoming another man's wife, being violated, and also puts Pharaoh in jeopardy because God's mad at him and starts plaguing his house. Disobedient Christians are absolutely a menace to other people. They're a menace. They're not a good witness, and others suffer because of it. Case in point, Jonah. Think of those poor people that were enduring the boat ride from Joppa as he traveled east, disobeying the Lord. I mean, they had great seas until uh, Jonah got on board, and all of a sudden, his sin implicated them, so to speak. They were also part of that great storm. And they were crying out, each one to his own God. Abram disobeyed. Sarai was in jeopardy, and so was Pharaoh. And in verse 18, Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this that you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Now, do you remember that God said, Abram, man, I want to bless you, and I want to make your life a blessing. Has his life become a blessing? His life's a curse. An unbeliever is rebuking a man of God. You know you're in trouble when the world looks at the church and starts rebuking the church. What is this that you've done, Abram? You lied to me, man. His life wasn't a blessing. It had become a curse. And uh, again, the lesson. A Christian that is out of fellowship with God is really not helping an unbeliever, but putting a stumbling block in his way. And one thing can lead to another. You're out of fellowship with God, others can get hurt, and you lose your witness. So Pharaoh commanded his men concerning him. They sent him away with his wife and all that he had. Then Abram went up from the land of Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had, and Lot went with him to the south. Abram was very rich in livestock and silver and gold. And he went out on his journey from the south as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai, to the place of the altar which he had made there at first. And Abram called on the name of the Lord. I love this. Again, God is gracious. The prodigal son returns. He falls down a couple times, but he comes back to the Lord. You know, there's always a second chance with God, and a third, and a fourth, and a thirtieth, and a fifty-sixth. Abram is living off God's mercy at this point, but he comes back. The prodigal son has returned back to his tent, back to the altar, back to the place of calling upon God. Again, let me just say, if you have taken many steps backward 
if you've backslidden, if you've walked away from God, there's one step back to him. You don't have to go all those same steps that you've taken. It's just, Lord, I come back to you. Return to your first love. Return to that time of fellowship with the Lord on a daily basis. Open your Bible tomorrow and the next day. Spend some time alone with God. Get direction for your week. Let God put his joy in your life. Get back to Bethel, to the altar, and call upon the name of the Lord. Lot also went with Abram and had flocks and herds and tents. And the land was not able to support them that they might dwell together, for their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. The area of Bethel, it's a beautiful area. It's the part of uh, Sumerian, the Sumerian hills. It really is gorgeous. But Abram, we're talking lots of animals here. We know that he has about 318 servants that he can arm with weapons to fight against the five kings that attack in the next chapter. If he has 318 servants that he can arm, he must have several hundred that he could not arm, like women, children, those that needed to stay and watch the household. If he had that many employees that he could send out to war, this guy had lots of herds. This guy had a lot of bucks, very wealthy. Thus, the land around Bethel was not able to sustain the kind of livestock and the demand for food that was there and available. Thus, they needed to just split up. And so the land was not able to support them that they might dwell together, for their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdmen of Lot's livestock, the Canaanites and the Perizzites then dwelt in the land. So Abram said to Lot, Please, let there be no strife between you and me, between my herdsmen and your herdsmen, because we're brothers. Is not the whole land before you? Please separate from me. If you take the left, I'll go right. If you go to the right, I'll go to the left. So Lot lifted up his eyes and saw all the plain of Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt, as you go toward Zoar. I want you to notice something. There is not a conflict between Abram and the Canaanites. There's not a conflict between Lot and the Canaanites. There's a conflict between the herdsmen of Lot and the herdsmen of Abram. In other words, the conflict is within the family. There's a principle here. We read it in the book of Corinthians. God's people often find conflicts among themselves. The entire book of 1 Corinthians is written to a church that had problem after problem after conflict after conflict. Do not be surprised if your hopes for uniformity in the body of Christ are shattered because there are conflicts as siblings within the same family. In fact, oftentimes the greatest problems are within the family. You know, when I was a kid, I had three older brothers, four boys in one family. We were rowdy. We loved each other intensely, but I'll tell you what, the greatest fights I ever had were not with the kid down the street, though we had a few with him as well, <laughs> but it was with my own brothers because we dwelt so closely together because we shared so much together, because so much of our lives were bound up one with another, it's inevitable that you have conflict. I remember the time when he threw me through the plate glass window in the front of the house when my parents were out on a date. 
We got whipped. And then my parents had to buy a whole new window. Two weeks later they went out again. I threw him through the new window that they had just purchased. And I think of all the crazy things we did and the intensity of conflict between us that I didn't have with anyone else. We as believers shouldn't get that bad. But there is conflict within the church. We don't see eye to eye on everything. You won't see eye to eye on everything. You won't. Unity does not mean uniformity. Don't get the idea that while we're on earth we're all going to break down all the walls of all the churches and we're all going to meet in one huge arena like the pit every Sunday morning in Albuquerque. That's a misplaced expectation. It's not going to happen. There's a lot of things we do agree on. There's a lot of things we disagree on. But the things we do agree on is that we all love Jesus Christ and He is the Lord. And you know, the rest of the stuff, hey, listen, I'm glad. I'm glad there are other churches. I really am. I'm glad there are the formal, high-ordered, suit-and-tie churches. I'm glad there are because there are lots of people, well, there are people that really like that. They really like it stiff. They've got to have the hymns, got to have the stained glass. You know, if they, you don't get stained glass in there, you don't have three hymns, you didn't worship. God wasn't present. Then you have the other side of the spectrum. It's got to be loud, highly keyed emotionally, got to dance and move around, uh, have certain phenomenon occur within the service, lots of jumping. If that didn't occur, no worship. God wasn't present. No anointing. I'm glad there are churches for people like that. I wouldn't want them all here. It wouldn't work. It wouldn't work. Realistically, it wouldn't happen. There are different places for those who see ideologically different. It doesn't matter where you worship. You know what matters is that you worship. Hey, if you feel comfortable with the hymns, the robes, praise the Lord. Then go there and worship and feel comfortable, but worship. If you feel comfortable bouncing off one wall to the next, I'm not going to knock it. If you have to do that, go for it. But worship and then don't knock the other places and say, well, they're not really as spiritual as we are. They didn't roll down the aisles like we did. <laughs> oh, they're a carnal church. They don't have the hymns that we have. What's really interesting is that the conflict was not between Lot and Abram, but between the herdsmen, the under-shepherds those that were really caring for the flocks. But, you know, Abram said, look, we don't have a conflict, man. We're brothers. So take, go for it. Take that land. I'll go over there. Set up your stakes there, and then I'll go for it. So Lot lifted up his eyes, and we're going to have to quit with good old Lot and uh, see the problems that he gets into. Lot lifted up his eyes and saw the plain of Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt as you go toward Zoar. And Lot chose for himself all the plain of Jordan, and Lot journeyed east, and they separated from each other. I find it interesting that in the land that they went in, we read that the Canaanites, the Perizzites, dwelt within the land. Don't you know that those guys were watching Abram and Lot and these herdsmen fighting? They were wondering, <laughs> there they are again, God's people, fighting again. 
at each other's throat again. We do have to be careful. Jesus said, By this shall all men know that you are my disciples, by the love that you have one for another. He didn't say, By this all men shall know you're my disciples, because you're always right. Some people's greatest interest is to be right. Well, our church is right. We split hairs, man. Hey, we've said it before, but you can be so right that you are dead right. There are things in the Christian faith we've discussed Thursday night that are non-negotiables, that differentiates between what is orthodox, historic Christianity, and that which is heresy, aberrant teaching. Then there's lots of non-negotiables. What you wear when you go to church, what kind of songs you sing. Do you lift your hands? Do you not lift your hands? Do you speak in tongues? Do you not speak in tongues? Do you use the NIV or the King James? The kind that Paul used? All of those are non-negotiables. They are not worth splitting company and fellowship over. They're worth discussing. You're not going to see eye to eye in everything, but those aren't important. The central things that are important is who Jesus is, the deity of Christ, the vicarious atonement, the bodily resurrection, the means of salvation through faith as an act of grace, faith alone, not plus works, but faith in Jesus Christ, which motivates us to work and serve him, for faith without works is dead. Those are all essentials, but the rest, who cares? Let's display before the Canaanites and the Perizzites a real love for one another. A real love for one another. As we occupy this land, lest they say, oh, there they are again, Methodists against the Baptists, Presbyterians against the Catholics, duking it out. You live in a fishbowl, whether you like it or not. Some of us live in a fishbowl more than others, but we all live in a fishbowl. The world looks at us. The world looks at you. Canaanites and Perizzites are all around you. As you go to work and you carry your Bible and you say, Praise the Lord, I'm a Christian. They go, Aha, we'll see. Let's see what kind of a Christian he is. Let's see what kind of a believer she is. Let's see how they react under stress, under pressure. When the boss gives them an order they don't like. Let's see what kind of language they use, what kind of jokes they laugh at. Let's see how they treat clientele and individuals. Their antennas are up, and I've got to say, they automatically will look at you pessimistically. They will not give you the benefit of the doubt. They're looking to nab you. Don't let them. Paul the Apostle says, that I want to live in such a way as to not cast a stumbling block or a reason for others to go off and fall into sin. Canaanites are all around. That's the land that you live in until God takes you home to heaven. Let's pray. Father, what a great example of faith Abram is, and yet up to this point we see he also becomes a bad example. I thank you, Lord, that you have told us the truth about your heroes.
You've written all about them. As lessons so that we would know what to do and what not to do. We would know what characteristics to emulate and which to stay away from. Lord, I pray that when we see the resources fading, that we won't push the panic button and leave that place of trust, dependence, and fellowship because so many ramifications and repercussions occur. Others suffer. Our witness is blown. We lose our peace, our joy. Fellowship is broken. It's a miserable place. I pray, Lord, that we would return and come to Bethel, a place of fellowship, calling upon the name of the Lord, the house of God, in touch and in communion with you. And, Father, I pray that you would give us a love one for another. Instead of pointing the critical finger at each other, that we would accept those who belong to you as brothers and sisters in the household of faith because you died for each one. And that means that each one is precious to you. So give us, Lord, an eye transplant to see differently. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 In Jesus' name, amen.